Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Welcome, listeners. It's Brad Kearns and Lindsay Taylor back with Dr. Kate Shanahan, Encore Performance, since we got into so many things on the first show. Thank you so much for joining us again, Kate. Thanks for having me back, Lindsay and Brad. Um, we listened to the recording. We loved it. We, we took our notes, made sure we uh, asked all that we could. Of course, we have many more things left over. But one thing that um, uh, we should kind of pick up with is the testing and the blood levels of ketones. Um, when we're measuring ketones in the blood, we're not measuring ketones that are produced by the muscle generally. Um, and the muscle can produce ketones. So when we're dealing with, uh, you know, athletes who have trained their muscle, um, who have been, you know, training themselves to be fat adopted, not only do they have fat stored in the muscle for use, they also can turn that fat directly into ketones right there. Um, so that, you know, they're producing ketones. You're just not going to measure it because it's used right away in the muscle. Wow. Little loop inside the muscle. Yeah. Like local muscle. So just in the, in the free flowing bloodstream, you're, you're measuring liver ketone production because those are circulating to go to the brain or something. I mean, what are we, what happens when we pop our finger? Like what, what's really... Well, there's the tissues that produce the most ketones are uh, the liver and the colon. Um, and so the, the colon, um, don't know how much of that gets released. Um, it might just be for local use. Um, but, uh, the liver certainly the purpose of the liver producing ketones is, you know, largely for the brain and other tissues. And so it's definitely hugely, um, uh, the liver that's, that's giving us those ketones that we measure in the blood may also be the colon because in some circumstances, the colon produces like five to 10 times more ketones than the liver. I mean, it's bigger. So if it's good at producing ketones and if it releases them for use, yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, so, and the liver, I'm sorry, the muscle produces ketones. Um, uh, uh, the kidneys can produce small, smaller amounts of ketones. So, I'm sorry, I I just popped back in. So, but are those mostly used locally then? Well, I don't think that, well, I certainly, I don't know. I I don't know how much research has been done. It's kind of tough. You have to isolate the tissue to even know that it produces the ketones. And then you have to kind of be able to measure it on the whole body level, which is, you'd have to do radioactivity. And I just don't know. I I haven't seen any research on that. Um, But, um, but yeah, so, but the liver's doing it for sharing. We know that. We know that for sure. The liver's doing it on behalf of the brain. Um, primarily. And, um, and so when we're measuring these blood ketones and the levels are low, that's just telling us that, you know, the brain has enough energy, whether it's coming from glucose or ketones, we don't, we don't, we don't know. It could be very much from ketones, but the athletes could be producing a lot of ketones in their locally in their muscle. And so that they we're not measuring it for that reason. Hmm. Well, is it, is it fair to say that, you know, if you're, say already a fairly lean person and you are eating basically an energy balance, like kind of regardless of whatever your activity level is that you, you would not necessarily expect to see huge circulating ketone numbers because you're eating an energy balance. You are probably 
I mean, if you have like only minimal body fat to spare, right? So you're kind of always, you're taking in and you're using in like, you know, a fairly balanced way, would you still be making a ton of ketones then? It all depends or largely depends on how often you eat. So if you're just- So that's eat- when it really gets into fasting yeah, or exactly. like intermittent fasting. Yeah. Or how many meals a day you eat. So but this is the fourth macronutrient. I mean, time between meals, I think we should call it the fourth macronutrient because it, the more you have of it, the more you're able to produce ketones and get into that fat burning state. And so when we're talking about what should your macros be in order to produce, to burn fat and produce ketones, uh, we talk about carb, protein, and fat, but we also should be talking about time between meals. Um, So if you were making a general recommendation, let's say to one of your NBA athletes that has high energy demand, um, if you, if you can make a general recommendation in in terms of uh, the the timing of your meals during the day, um, the role of fasting versus the role of getting adequate nutrition to perform and recover, um, what are you thinking right now, Kate? Well, I, it's a, generally I um, recommend that they do most of their eating after training or after a game if if that works with their schedule, you know, because sometimes <laughs> games are not until eight or ten at night <laughs> on their you know their local time zone, um, so that that's not practical at that point. But um, in general, for the training, if you're not hungry before you train, don't eat. And a lot of athletes are real happy with that advice because they've always struggled with the fact that they're just not hungry and they feel like they don't train as it's not as enjoyable to be trained with food glugging around in their stomach, but yet they've heard you're supposed to eat, you know, so often, or you're going to get muscle wasting, right? That's that, that's the general thing that kind of drives this frequent feeding uh, behavior for athletes is they're told that they're going to get muscle wasting if they don't do it. But, uh, that there's absolutely no evidence to support that. Um, and, uh, not good evidence, I should say, to support that you get muscle wasting if you don't eat free frequently. So in, in general, it's just better to eat fewer meals and make sure that you, um, get those meals to be as nutritious as possible. Yeah, my only concern with that is just then it's so easy to undereat calorically. And so for female athletes, I just get really worried about them just not eating enough over the course of a 24 or 48 hour period, you know? Yeah. And when, Which you know, is when a separate question, exactly, obviously. Exactly. And that relates to protein, particularly, and the role of protein. You know, what do you do with protein? And the, there's, because there's, uh, I think there's um, interest in protein, using protein as an anabolic. Um, stimulant, basically protein pulsing and stuff like this. Um, so yes, you can definitely mix that with a ketogenic diet, but you should mix it. I think if you're, if you're somebody who needs to build muscle for sure, you can't always, I don't, I don't recommend that athletes always do that like one or two meals a day. I feel like they should once in a while have frequent, um, more frequent meals, particularly getting a lot of protein in those meals. I kind of live by the rule of, I just, when it comes to my eating schedule and my macronutrient profile, I like to just mix it up. I mean, I'll do something for five days and then throw a a day in where I eat, you know, maybe 800 calories more. And then I'll do some, you know, then I'll go back to my normal eating for a week. And then I'll do, you know, two, uh, two days where I eat higher carb, but lower fat. And I don't know that there's any science behind that. I just don't want to get in like a nutritional rut. So uh, that's how I roll. 
The, I think there is a lot of science because we've been running the uh, a kind of experiment on the American athlete for a long time, telling them to have frequent small meals all the time. And what you see when you look at their metabolism is that a lot of these athletes have a bit of hormonal problems, insulin resistance, they don't burn fat very well. And so I think that you know what you said is you know, a little bit of different stuff, mix it up is super important. It's it's like cross training for your metabolism, you know? <laughs> right. So I'm going to say, I'm, I'm my, like, I'm giving my husband my thumbs up right now. Like, all right, I was right about something. <laughs> He's always the one who's like ahead of me about knowing how to eat. <laughs> That's interesting. And it came up for me too, Lindsay, where I had my consultation with Dr. Tommy Wood, Nourish, Balance, Thrive. You can listen to that show um, on the Primal Endurance channel. And one of the things that came up with my blood work and my comprehensive testing that they do was his suggestion that I consume more total calories because I might be in this keto stage where uh, my appetite is normalized to the extent that I'm trying to perform and recover from magnificent athletic feats at an over 50-year-old person here and maybe not getting enough calories. So I just went for fun and did an experiment this past month of September 2017, and I'm into it for practically a month here where I'm eating vastly more calories than I usually do, including more carbohydrates, just as a matter of course. But of course, nothing, uh, no refined carbohydrates. There's never any call to consume those. And I do feel like I've had a bit of a bump in my performance and especially my recovery rate. So I can perform a hard workout. I'm used to waiting two or three days after that. And uh, I sometimes feel better more quickly, possibly attributed to just greater nutritional intake overall. That makes a lot of sense. Um, So how do we reconcile this with the ideas that um, fasting is so beneficial? We get these autophagy benefits, we get these caloric efficiency. And then on the other side, and I'm also going to kind of um, uh, inject my editorial here, but on the on the other side of that coin, we have people that have athletic performance goals and recovery, and also the need to get you know maximum nutrition from let's say a green smoothie every morning. So in my personal case, I transitioned from a very comfortable, effortless fasting period up to noon or one p.m. as my routine to making this massive smoothie that has all kinds of good nutrition in it, but I'm no longer having these uh, uh, extended fasting periods and the purported benefits. So it's, we need both, right? We need to have kind of an anabolic or muscle building, tissue building kind of phase of our, our lives. And we need to have this catabolic phase tissue building of our lives. And, um, it's, it's not like one is the one we should be in all the time. It's kind of like asking the question, what's better night or day? Well, you need both. <laughs> and um, you need to be able to build muscle. And at the same time, you need to be able to break down old worn out muscle. And so in, can, you, can you actually control and modulate the times when your body's doing that? Well, to some extent, yeah. Like if you do go through a period where for a couple of weeks you're eating extra calories, nutritious calories, getting plenty of sleep, doing um, you know a, a good amount of exercise, doing new types of exercise, you're going to be building new muscle. You're going to be getting all the nutrition that you need perhaps to build up bigger muscles than you've typically had. Also, to possibly bigger fat stores, maybe increase your bone density. Um, 
you know, maybe increase some of your ligament density, right? Because the connective tissues, we don't really think about that as a body tissue too much, but it's very important in longevity. And then on the other hand, in the times where you are more um, dipping into ketosis frequently and uh, and restricting, relatively restricting your calories, well, that's when you get to get rid of the extra worn out cells that is you know, the process there, we had the fancy name for that is autophagy, the parts of the cell that aren't, uh, as that are older and that are ready for being broken down. Oh, Mark, Mark Sisson's going to love your answer. Cause we were just talking on the phone. We should record these phone calls sometimes. Cause when he goes off, he goes off. Usually it's on his, on his drive down the coast highway and he gets, it gets riled up. It might be the traffic <laughs> or I don't know. Um, then you hear the radar detector going off in the background. He's got to, got to settle down for a second. Um, he was saying that the, the title of the book, The Keto Reset, implies that everyone deserves to have a reset period where you go through the process we described, get into keto the right way, and do this perhaps as an annual exercise to clean out the damaged cells to protect against your cancer risk. But it can be used as a tool, not necessarily a long-term you know, strictly adherent to the macronutrient patterns, but instead uh, seeing it as a as for for perhaps an annual reset, or at the very least, a, a bucket list reset where you make yourself uh, get to the finish line and prove that you can be metabolically efficient, that you can restrict your carbohydrate intake and start uh, prioritizing fat burning. But then, if you decide over time, such as myself and my experiment over the last month, that I'm going to consume green smoothies or I'm going to go have some fun in Vegas and hit the the Caesar's Palace us back in El Buffet and eat for two hours straight. You know, all those things are, are okay, but you want to have that healthy baseline of being a fat-burning beast rather than carbohydrate dependent. Absolutely. And this plays uh, uh, some role in the discussion of weight loss plateaus as well, which we don't fully understand. But, you know, for all we know, uh, the fact that a lot of people following a diet for a while and suddenly they stop losing weight and they can't really figure out what they're doing differently, they're tracking their calories and everything, Um, it could be that the body has kind of run out of the cells that are ready to go through this process of autophagy and get used up and burned up for fuel and then just starts resisting that accelerated breakdown and accelerated loss of particularly adipose cells, right? Because you want to not just empty out your fat cells and have skinny, hungry fat cells. You want to actually get rid of them. Well, that's that's a process that's going to involve uh, apoptosis um, and prior to that, autophagy. Um, and, um, and it may just be that, you know, the, the body is cautious about doing stuff like that. And so it it has to go through a period where it stops doing that for a little while. And it's not that calories suddenly change their value. It's that you then get tired and you're less active and you don't really realize it, but you're not exercising as much as you're going through this plateau or you're, maybe you are exercising as much, but your other activities are, are dropping. And so you are burning fewer calories and that contributes also to the plateau. But the underlying reason there is that your body can only go through so much of a, a catabolic period. It needs to be interrupted periodically with um, you know, maybe an anabolic period where you're building stuff back up again, or at least a break in the ca- catabolic period, particularly for people who ha- who have weight problems, because presumably they've been building, you know, for a long time, and now they're su- we're suddenly having them lose weight and 
being in the breakdown mode, well, their body's not really necessarily used to that or does, does that, you know, a lot. And so you have to kind of ease your way into it. So there are people that can pretty much just fast and lose something like a hundred pounds in six months, but not everybody can do that. And I think possibly some of this is some of the reason because the body just can't give up that much of itself (laughs) without getting nervous and trying to make you stop. (laughs) Right. And I see this so much in, um, the keto community and the people that I'm talking to every day on Facebook is that, and, and with our primal endurance athletes is that people are very afraid to do anything that they perceive as stopping their forward momentum. So if they're training, they want to get stronger and stronger and faster and faster. And if they're losing weight, they just want to be on this continuous linear, you know, downward trajectory on the scale. And there's a big fear of doing anything that would be seen as either causing a plateau or maybe even doing something that's perceived as backwards momentum, right? So if you have a weight loss goal, you don't want to throw in a week or two of, say, throwing on another 800 calories per day, because what if you gain two pounds back and now now you're moving in the wrong direction? And so I spend a lot of time trying to hammer this message home that there's, you never just have one goal. Like weight loss might be your main goal, but you presumably hopefully also have like a myriad health goals that you're also trying to achieve at the same time and that you have to service these other goals as well. And sometimes that means relaxing on one goal in the service of another metabolic or health goal. And that if you can kind of find a better balance that ultimately, you know, six months, 12 months down the road, you'll probably be in a much healthier place. Yeah. Patience and balance. Cause it's, you know, gotta be a lifestyle thing, not like a temporary freak out. I got to change everything and <laughs> by a deadline that I don't, I mean, it's nice to have a deadline and be motivated, but, um, from my perspective, I, I feel like people are setting themselves up for failure when that's what they've got in mind. So if one is on a plateau and we get so many of these uh, uh, questions, I mean, some of them I've seen at PrimalCon when we used to do the retreats, I mean, people would come up to Mark with tears in their eyes saying, look, dude, I'm doing everything you're saying. I've been doing it for 19 months straight and I'm still stuck with 20 extra pounds of body fat. Is it is it possible that um, an anabolic period where they're consuming more calories would kind of give them a, a, a jump start or a bump and then they could go back to their previous routine and perhaps experience success, even though it's, uh, what would you call it? It doesn't make, doesn't make logical sense or doesn't make mathematical mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. I mean, whatever they were doing, maybe it's just time to mix it up. So if, if they were, um, you know, maybe just doing one meal a day or something like that, maybe it's time to go through a period where they don't overeat. They don't like go on to junk food or eat, you know, stuff they know they shouldn't eat, but just they, they change the, this, the ancestral approach, right? Cause the, uh, what we haven't really touched on much is that all of this is based on the ancestral idea that human beings were not feeding themselves frequent small meals throughout our evolution. And we don't need that. And we actually don't, you know, <laughs> benefit from it for, in a lot of, uh, you know, if we do it continuously, we couldn't, right. So we would go through periods of relative famine and relative feasting. And, and I think that is, um, the underlying, um, principle 
behind everything that we've all been talking about here is that that's why you need to mix it up because the body is expected that. And it's not just human evolution, it's pre-human, like all animals do this, all mammals, like vertebrates, right? It's so basic that (laughs) it's built in even, you know, to very primitive type of creatures. So it's that all creatures go through this period of relative feasting and relative famine. And presumably there's stuff that the body needs to do during each of those periods. And if we don't have one of those periods and the body's not getting whatever that is, getting a chance to do it. Yeah, that's a really important message because normally when we're talking to people who are not meeting their goals or feel like they've plateaued or whatever, their only answer is just tighten the reins. Right. You know, do whatever I'm doing now, but just do it harder. (laughs) Train harder, restrict harder, fast harder, fast longer. And you know, maybe that's not the answer for everyone all the time in every situation. Right. Exactly. Especially if it's a stress, because like, if they feel like this is becoming, you know, too rigid, they're not able to do any of the things that they really want to do, then I feel like that's kind of a red flag for something does need to change. Yeah, absolutely. People really underestimate the degree to which a stressful diet can be counterproductive. Yeah. So speaking of, of things that people are afraid of or unsure of with the diet, can we um, take a little right turn here and talk a little bit more? We were talking off the air about the whole issue of protein and how much protein you should be eating. And if you are pursuing a keto strategy, um, I feel like a lot of people in the keto world have become a little protein phobic right. because of this constant message we're getting, you know, protein knocks you out of ketosis. I had a chicken breast and now I, I can't my ketones have tanked. And so can you just give us a little bit of, uh, you know, keto 101 about the role of, of protein and its role in insulin production and gluconeogenesis and the degree to which we should versus should not be restricting protein on a keto diet? Yeah. So the role of protein, uh, protein is very similar in a lot of ways to carbohydrate, um, in terms of its, uh, hormonal effects specifically it is anabolic, it stimulates muscle building, and it also stimulates to a lesser degree though, insulin, uh, release. And therefore, if you have a lot of protein in your diet, you are going to be producing, you are going to be making your body produce more insulin. And, and if you have more protein than you need, um, well, that's just silly because your body has to then convert that, that protein into fat for storage. So, you know, protein is the Goldilocks macronutrient. You need to get a certain amount, but if you get too much, then you're not doing yourself any benefit. And some folks would even say that, you know, it could be bad because you have to deal with all this nitrogen, like protein is loaded. Uh, the protein is made out of amino acids and they've got nitrogen on them. And the kidney will have to now eliminate all this nitrogen and it can cause gout and it can cause other kidney problems. Um, so yeah, you don't want too much protein. You know, in my view, it's mostly because too much is too much and it's a waste of animal flesh, right? I don't like doing, I don't like wasting. But the, as far as the, you know, how, how does it affect a ketogenic diet? This kind of ties back to an earlier conversation that we had about um, carbohydrate. Well, you can be on a very high carb diet and still be producing ketones if you have enough of that fourth macronutrient, the time between meals. If you are just eating 
one meal a day, but it's a very, say, high protein meal, or say it's just high protein and high carb, right? The two, (laughs) both of them, you can still be producing ketones because after, uh, after your body has put the that all in storage, gotten it all out of the bloodstream. So maybe like six, eight hours after a meal. Well, now you've got to dip into your body fat stores to produce energy again. Uh, and whenever you do that, you have a chance of producing ketones. That's funny because uh, Lindsay's husband, Dr. Jake Taylor, honorary doctor. <laughs> he's not um, a doctor. <laughs> he, he's, on, he's got many honorary doctorate degrees Jake that he's, he's lining up. Um, but he eats like this once a day thing. He doesn't test because he's afraid of pricking his finger. He's got blood phobia. <laughs> yes. But we're going to make him test because he's probably putting up big numbers just because he eats only one meal a day, even though he's not observing those tight macronutrient ratios. Um, and we talked to you and Jake on the uh, video series on the Keto Reset video course. So that'll be some interesting thoughts about the varying uh, approaches. Um, but that's, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty wild. Now we have, well, wouldn't you call it the fifth macronutrient because ketones are the fourth macronutrient? Now we got timing between meals. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, um, well, I call it the fourth macronutrient because we don't generally eat ketones. I mean, we do. Yes. Okay. Sure. You do. If your liver is producing them, yeah, your brain is eating ketones. But, um, but I, I count it by stuff that we actually do or don't do. So, <laughs> so we have different like systems here, like the metric system and the English system. <laughs> if you're kind of charting the protein and keto diet story, at first it was, you know, protein, bad protein, insulin, protein, sugar, you know, don't eat too much protein. And then we've seen the pendulum swing back a little bit the other way where kind of now there's a prevailing argument that, well, gluconeogenesis is demand driven. And so even if you overeat protein, you will not get necessarily knocked out of ketosis because you won't, you know, accelerate glucose production above beyond what you know, your body actually needs. Is that is the reason that that argument is flawed is because it's not taking insulin into account or is there something else? Well, I think that argument is not flawed. So maybe I misunderstood, but it is true that what you said that keto gluconeogenesis is demand driven. And just because you're eating more protein doesn't mean you're going to be suddenly producing more, more sugar. Absolutely. That's that I would agree with that. Right. That part is yeah. true. Yeah. But so the thing is, and here's, here's the key thing. Um, we're talking about carbohydrates, um, a lot, but we're not talking about, and then we are talking about insulin a lot, but we're not talking about the state that most Americans are in actually, which is insulin resistance. And, um, and you know, I say that somewhat flippantly, but insulin resistance is a precursor to diabetes. Yes. Um, but it is a disease state. It is a disease state that we don't, that doctors don't diagnose very well at all. But signs of it are overweight, frequent hunger, fatigue, uh, elevated blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol levels, fatty liver, uh, trouble concentrating, brain fog, thyroid problems, uh, you know, symptoms of adrenal fatigue. These all come with insulin resistance. And when you're insulin resistance, when you're insulin resistant, you really are not going to be able to produce ketones very efficiently. And we know this because people who have type 2 diabetes and are insulin resistant can have extremely high glucoses, but they never go into, di- into diabetic ketoacidosis because they can't produce ketones very efficiently. Um, and so, um, 
the 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 problem is a hormonal problem and it has to be reversed before you can be healthy before you can produce ketones before you can have plenty of energy convert body fat really easily into energy and um you know have all the benefits that we want with fat burning um but the, the it is a hormonal problem insulin resistance you have elevated insulin in your body all the time because in order to keep your blood sugar level under re reasonable control, your body has to produce two times, 10 times, 50 times in some cases, the amount of insulin to squash that glucose out of the bloodstream and into fat cells or muscle cells or wherever it's going to go. So you don't have toxic amounts of sugar in the bloodstream. And this is what, this is how you are preventing yourself from developing type two diabetes for the first 10, 20, 30 years of following a standard American diet. So the reason it's important to talk about macros is because the macros that you choose, including protein will stimulate insulin release. Um, so carbohydrate, we know very well stimulates insulin release, but so does protein. And so when a lot of folks go on a low carb diet, they, they go low carb and low fat and, and eat too much protein and they're still producing too much insulin. Then they're not reversing their insulin resistance. Right. That's why the distinction I was trying to make is that, I mean, we know that amino acids can be converted into glucose, but also that's not separate from, but it's a slightly different question from whether or not the protein is insulinogenic as well. And it is. And so that's kind of, that is maybe the main reason for people who are on a ketogenic diet to be smart about their protein intake and not just eat, you know, protein and fat with abandon and then just keep carbs low and think that they're eating a ketogenic profile. Although there still may be other reasons and, you know, cyclical times where you may want to eat more protein is, you know, maybe if you're, especially right. if you're an athlete, but then you're maybe not eating a ketogenic profile per se, and that that's okay because protein does so many other good things in your body as well that you don't want to just restrict, as we were talking about earlier, that you want to have anabolic and catabolic periods, and it's hard to be anabolic with highly restricted protein, right? So Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Protein, if you've ever probably, you know, maybe you tried this, you know, if you skip lunch for a couple of days in a row, and then maybe you just have like a, a, a light lunch that's relatively high in protein, you're going to find yourself getting hungry for lunch the next day. And, and it's because protein makes you hungry, just like carb makes you hungry, not because it's bad for you, but because it puts you in this anabolic state. And when you're in the anabolic state, you do get hungry more easily. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's anything to this argument that we are also hearing that if you just package your protein with fat, when you eat it, that, that, that mutes the insulinogenic response to it. Have you seen that? Yeah. So, um, it's true. It, it will, because it'll absorb more slowly. Um, so for sure it, it, it will. Yeah. Um, how important is that? You know, um, that's a different question. You know, it matters like the other things that you're doing in your day, right? I still wouldn't recommend having multiple small meals like that of high protein, high fat. It's just, uh, you know, unless you are purposefully trying to, you know, get into some sort of an anabolic reset, right? <laughs> uh, generally speaking, Kate, do you support the common recommendation of targeting a protein consumption of around 0.7 grams per pound of lean body mass to uh, maintain, uh, maintain 
uh, normal metabolic function, maintain muscle mass, and not overstimulate those growth factors uh, with excess protein intake. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is like of your ideal um, lean body mass, right? Like if you're at your normal weight for your height. And if you're not? Um, if you're not, it should be, you should calculate it based on what your ideal body weight should be. So like, let's say if you're five, five foot even female and you weigh 200 pounds, well, your ideal body weight there is more closer to 100 pounds. So then you do a hundred times 0.7 and you get around 70 rather than 200 times 0.7 and get around 140. Wow. I've never heard that. That's interesting. So what's happening there when you calculate, boy, that, wouldn't that be nice if we calculated like our car purchases off our ideal income rather than, <laughs> I'm looking at the, the new Tesla with the uh, extended mileage. No, um, if you're calculating off your ideal weight, um, what's going to happen uh, metabolically? Like it's going to help you progress toward that? Well, that's just how you get into that Goldilocks zone of the protein amount without getting too much. So, you know, if you're, if you are five foot and you weigh 200 pounds and you're getting 140 grams of protein, that's probably more than you really need because you don't have that much lean muscle that you just need to maintain with protein. Um, and so you're going to be converting the extra into fat. And that's where we get to that wastage part of it, which is, um, you know, that's why it's the Goldilocks macro. We don't want to have so much that we waste protein and we don't want to have so little that we waste our muscle in search of protein. Uh, when you say you're converting the extra protein into fat, is that going through that intermediate stage of converting it into glucose? Uh, generally, yes. Although some amino acids are what they call directly ketogenic, or they can be made into acetyl groups, and then you can make fat out of that, body fat out of that, and would never have to go through glucose. Either way, don't eat too much protein. And I think uh, we did a great job uh, covering all the questions and a lot of contributions from our, our readers on Facebook. We thank you so much for joining us, Kate Shanahan. Deep Nutrition, the new and improved Deep Nutrition, one of the greatest books uh, in this whole game of ancestral health and living and eating healthy foods is is out on the shelves. And, um, oh, boy, the new version is is so cool. Even if you read the old one from 2009, this thing is like it's right here on Lindsay's dining room table taking up space. So look for that. And tell us what else you've been up to and um, where we should go go find you uh, in the in the, uh, the, in the, the real world. And, and not get Lyme disease out in, in rural Connecticut when you're hiking. <laughs> Please yeah. don't. Right. Oh, Connecticut. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm now in Connecticut. I have an office in Newtown, Connecticut, that uh, where I'm working. And I'm working on our next book, which is going to be continuing along the lines of all this, which is uh, how to burn fat, right? So we, we're tentatively calling it the fat burn factor uh, because we do believe, as I believe that you guys do, that being able to burn fat is the distinguishing feature of health. And um, we uh, are also continuing to uh, have more stuff going on on a website, drkate.com, and lots of resources there where you can calculate your macros real easily and um, engage in the community. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm so excited about that book, Kate. That's going to be so great for our community. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It was so fun chatting with you about all things um, cyclical and biochemical. <laughs> Catching up with Dr. Kate Shanahan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, listeners, for listening. Have a great day. This is Brad Kearns and Lindsay Taylor signing off.
Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe. <laughs>